But when it comes to training up your children, you know that Augustine's Confessions is good. It is time proven to be good. (laughs) And so if they don't like Augustine's Confessions, you need to remember, like, there's always something wrong with all of us. And we have to work so that the things that are worthwhile actually become things that we love. And we are learning to love what is worth loving, which may be trial and error. It may have to, in Augustine's words, even the sweetest bread to a sick person may taste bitter. Mm. And if it tastes bitter to them, they have to, you know, change their palate. You want them to grow and develop a better palate for those things, which means they have to try things they don't like. Welcome to Homeschool Conversations with Humility and Doxology, a series of interviews with real-life homeschool moms, dads, and other educators on all sorts of topics that affect our lives as homeschool parents. I'm Amy Sloan, a second-generation homeschool mom of five, and I am so delighted that you are here. Here on Homeschool Conversations, we'll discuss educational philosophy, family life, and more. Come chat with us. Hello, friends. Today, I am joined by Dr. Jessica Houghton-Wilson, who is the inaugural visiting scholar of liberal arts at Pepperdine University in Malibu, California. She previously taught at the University of Dallas. Jessica is the author and editor of eight books, including Reading for the Love of God, The Scandal of Holiness, and Giving the Devil His Due, Demonic Authority in the Fiction of Flannery O'Connor and Fyodor Dostoevsky. Wilson speaks around the world on topics as varied as Russian novelists, Catholic thinkers, and Christian ways of reading. And I am so delighted to have you on the podcast, Jessica. I'm really looking forward to this. Um, I know that many of my listeners are fellow book lovers like I am, and this will be really a great conversation. So just, I gave like the official bio there, but can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your family, and just the history of your own literary life? I always am curious if there's a particular book or experience as you were growing up and it changed the way you thought about reading. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for introducing me to your listeners. I am a mom of four, and we live in Salem Springs, Arkansas right now, but we're transitioning to California actually this year because I'm going to take a full-time job again at Pepperdine. So I'm going to go from half homeschooling right now. We have a hybrid school um, to letting my husband do the half hybrid school. And um, so we're making that transition right now, but I applaud homeschool so much. So I'm gratified to hear there's so many followers of that. Um, My own literary journey starts when I could learn to read, and I learned to read really young, and I just was voracious, as I'm sure many people, you know, who are big readers now can remember being, and one of the life-changing moments for me was, um, I actually shared this with my book club on Tuesday night, we were all talking about books that changed our life when we were little, and mine wasn't so much about the content as the experience. Um, I w- took a book on vacation with my family. I think we were going to the beach in Florida and it was Huckleberry Finn. And I read it before we even got to the beach. I read it in the car on the car ride. And I was like, oh no, what am I going to do? I already read the book I brought. And my dad said, just read it again. 
And that was such a life-changing moment. I'm like, wait a second, what? Like you could read a book more than one time. Um, and from then on, I was just, I read it, I don't know, maybe four or five times over the course of our beach trip. And I thought, this is awesome. Like you experience so much more every time you read it. And then I couldn't wait. And so one of my favorite things now, of course, is getting to read books again with students, reading books again with my children and seeing their first experiences. And then just the pleasure of like learning something new every time that I get to know that book or that author again. That is such a fantastic story. I love rereading books as sort of two different things. One, I love taking a book that I loved when I was younger and reading it again every few years or every decade because the book kind of grows. If it's a good book, right, it's kind of growing with you. And so you're a little different the next time you read it. And so you notice different things about the book. And then even just reading a story for the first time with my child is also a whole different way of thinking about the book. Last year, I read through the Chronicles of Narnia with my youngest. And of course, this was probably the millionth time I had read the series on my own. But to have that experience of reading it for his first time um, was just a really unique way of approaching the book. And I think, you know, readers, we love being able to see those books we've read in new ways. Yeah, it's so it's so fantastic when they get excited and anxious about like what's going to happen and <laughs> that enjoyment because you're like, I know what's going to happen and I'm still on the edge of my seat. Exactly. You know, it's like, uh, is this time Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth going to get together? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, Jessica, why do you think that Christians in particular ought to read literature widely? You know, a little tongue in cheek, but sometimes you might hear someone say, oh, well, just read the Bible. You know, maybe mm -hmm. a few, but a little bit of nonfiction. We don't really need to read literature. What would you say about that? Yeah, you know, you say it tongue in cheek, but I hear it all the time. I mean, I just had one of my former students who I taught when I was at University of Dallas teaching classical education for teachers. And she just texted me and she was so frustrated because she tried to create this beautiful catechism of quotes from all the literature that her eighth and ninth graders would be studying over the course of the year and um, giving them something good and true to memorize. And the administration came back because parents were angry. They were memorizing anything but the Bible. Mm. And she's like, why do we keep having this conversation every single year? So I think it's a, a worthwhile one to have because there's still so many misconceptions about the Bible and its relationship to literature, but, you know, God spoke creation into existence. So from the very beginning, the first way he reveals himself to us is as a speaker of words who unites the things of this world with the words that are. And he does that from Genesis all the way through Revelation, the book of life. We have Jesus being called the word. So God is telling us that words matter, that books matter. And we are called the people of the book as Christians. And the book that we, you know, primarily like we put our faith in is created by God working with human beings who are also culture makers and readers and cultural intakers. And so we have, you know, Genesis, it's not a problem that it's influenced by Canaanite literature. What's amazing is that it's responding to it and revealing something higher that humans could not have come up with. But you can still put it in concert and in conversation with those secular texts because that's what the writers were being influenced by. And it's the same all the way through the New Testament. We have, you know, Paul just drawing on his wisdom and knowledge 
from secular literature and pagan and Greek writers and putting them in concert with the voice of truth. And so I think as Christians, we should constantly be doing that, you know, reading the things of this world through the lens of the Bible and then returning to the Bible with a renewed sense of, of who God is and what he's asking for us as, as we live in and reside in this world. I think that's such an important perspective. I think as a classical educator, you know, we were very word focused and it's a word rich education. And I think as Christian classical educators, it's really important to remember exactly like you were saying, you know, God spoke the world into existence. It was by the word of his power. Jesus is the word. You know, there's a reason why words matter and why they're at the core of our education and our Christian life, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So what does it then mean to read in a distinctively Christian way? And why does that kind of perspective matter? Well, I, I think this is where, I mean, there's a whole tradition that is really hard to sum up. So I'm going to, you know, talk and people are going to feel like they're just drinking from the the hose here um, on high. And I'm sorry about that. But um but basically, over the history of the world, we kind of lose, we have lost our ability to read well as more and more secular voices and philosophers and, um, you know, politicians and school teachers have really had more individualistic ways of reading, utilitarian ways of reading, um, instrumental ways of reading that have influenced us. And now we don't even know how we read and how much has just been part of the culture we're in. So for instance, you know, in my book, I start with this example of Thomas Jefferson, who creates his own version of the Bible by cutting it into little verses and pasting them together. And it's called the Thomas Jefferson Bible. Well, that would have been unheard of 500 years before him. And now we naturally just cut up verses and paste them all around our houses. And we think nothing of it, right? We put them on our cars and we put them on our t-shirts and again, would have been unheard of for a way of reading the Bible. So if we look at the whole tradition, going back to how Jesus read the Old Testament, how the apostles then read the teachings of Jesus, how the early church read the Acts of the Apostles, how, you know, the medieval church then read the early church fathers and mothers, we, we get a more consistent and coherent methodology about how to read. And it has to do with who we are in God. It has to do with our humility that's necessary before the scriptures, our charity, because we worship a God that is love. It has to do with our spiritual nature as beings, not just our physical material nature. And, and if we return to that kind of consistent narrative and story that kind of gotten threaded and lost, you know, down the line, um, I think we'll have a richer experience of encountering the word, but also encountering literature as well. And not only when we've broken up the Bible and sort of picked out our little our little life verse or our little, um, you know, the verse that's going to tell us what to do today or something like that, which is a terrible way of <laughs> understanding the big picture of, of scripture. But I see that as well. It, it comes into when we're reading a book and we just look for the moral. Okay, what's the moral of the story? Or um, not really wanting to see the big picture of what the author is trying to tell us. But okay, let's just sort of go and find a nice little quote uh, a pithy saying we can can take from this book. Um, and it doesn't really give us that full picture of of idea and story and what I get what the author really intended, right? Well, and if I yeah, if I can go off of that, um, well, two different directions. One, something I talk about in my text is 
uh, about the author's relationship also to the reader, also to the text. So there is something personal about scripture. There are life verses. There are verses that you memorize and they become part of the, you know, the refrain in your head, you know, that kind of chorus mentality that we're called to as creatures, like to have memorized things and bring them out at the right time in the right place. And that's a reader response to the text. But as you said, it's also in tandem with the author's intention for the text. And in this case, the author is God. So it's a very high author intention. And then it's what the scripture actually says itself. So you're also trying to understand not just the whole, but understand things that may be beyond your reader experience. For instance, like if you're reading the Bible and something speaks to you, that's wonderful. Like you want to memorize it, you want to hold on to it. But if you're reading the Bible and something confuses you, don't go past it, right? Wrestle with the text as well, because we're worshiping a God that's higher than ourselves, which means things are not going to be understood by our limited beings right away. And we have to wrestle with what's actually there as well. So I call that the art of reading, right? The author's intention, the reader's response, and the text itself, A-R-T. The art of reading really demands all three. Do you remember thinking history was boring as you fell asleep over dry textbooks and meaningless bits of information? Have you been hearing that your children are supposed to memorize large chunks of history dates, fill out extensive timelines, or complete stacks of worksheets to prove they've really learned their history facts? Well, I'm here to tell you that it does not have to be that way in your homeschool. Homeschool history can be fun. It's not just dates and dead people. You can craft your own customized textbook-free history plan to use with many ages, in a simple, fun, joyful way in your homeschool, and I have a textbook-free history masterclass to show you how. It's a 45-minute video masterclass and a 12-page e-booklet, plus I have lots of links to other resources that you may find helpful, and I share a lot of my own personal stories as a second-generation homeschool mom of five. So head over to humilityanddoxology.com shop and check out the textbook free history masterclass. And as a podcast listener, use code podcast for $5 off. That's really great. Yeah, really good. Okay, so let's imagine someone who's listening, they're thinking, okay, this sounds great, but I've just picked up this new book. I'm about to start reading it. What are some of the steps that we ought to take as readers when we have that new book? and we want to understand it more deeply. I would say first, and this is from C.S. Lewis, you know, move aside your presuppositions or assumptions. So for example, if you like come to the text, thinking something about the author um, in particular, like, oh, this is a Catholic writer and I'm Protestant. I don't know if I can read this. Or um, this is Nietzsche. He was an atheist and he was crazy. I can't read this well. I have to be skeptical the whole time. I'm going to, you know... So move aside all the presuppositions. Um, then also move aside your cultural or time period located ones for the moment so that you can fully enjoy it. Um, so for instance, if you're reading a piece of medieval literature and it doesn't accord with what you think in the 21st century, like move that aside. Try to be a medieval person for a moment. Like C.S. Lewis says, put on the knight's armor right? Um, so walk in his steps, walk in, in the footsteps of the character. And I think that's the first 
read. And, and everybody always talks about reading as though it's only a one-time, one-and-done. And as I mentioned with my Huckleberry Finn experience, what I've learned is that the first reading is just the reading for enjoyment. It's just the reading for pleasure. It's where um, our skepticism needs to come down, our um, you know moments of holding on to our own beliefs and not wanting that to be prevailed against, et cetera. And we just, we just need to enjoy the first time through without all that baggage. Then the second, I'm not saying don't ever analyze or don't ever question or don't ever argue with the text, but that's, that should always be secondary to trying to enjoy what is in front of you, trying to receive the gift that this other author tried to relay. Yeah. And you know, the more times that we reread it, we're able to go, well, the first time you don't know what's going to happen, right? <laughs> Sometimes you're just reading it so very quickly because you're trying desperately to find out what's going to happen next. And so you can miss some of the details or the nuance. But then as we are able to return to the book later on, we're able to slow down because we don't have that same anxiety of knowing what's going to turn, you know, what's going to turn out in the story. And so we're able to notice some of those things that we might not have seen the first time through. Yeah, exactly. And you want to have both experiences when you're, when you're reading a book. Well, you know, most of the listeners of my podcast are obviously homeschool parents and we have this desire to pass on a deep love for and a humble posture towards the great books and the good books. Mm-hmm. How would you encourage parents and educators to nourish this wise Christian approach to literature? I'm, I'm wondering if specifically if there are some questions we can ask our children as we read and discuss books together, and maybe if there are some questions we ought to avoid. Yeah, I the first thing I would throw out, and especially thinking about kids, is you throw out the idea that every piece of literature you're supposed to like. <laughs> mm, that's a good one. <laughs> In the same way that your kids, when you they first try curry, maybe they don't like it, or they first try green beans and they don't like it. Um, not everything that they try, they're going to prefer the first time. And we, I think as a culture, too much feed into the sensibility of, well, if you don't like it, just move on. Okay, well, that's fine with some things. New York Times bestseller, maybe it's not your cup of tea, or maybe this season of life, like this book, isn't the book for you, and that's okay for right now. But when it comes to training up your children, you know that Augustine's Confessions is good. It is time proven to be good. (laughs) And so if they don't like Augustine's Confessions, you need to remember, like, there's always something wrong with all of us, and we have to work so that the things that are worthwhile actually become things that we love. And we are learning to love what is worth loving, which may be trial and error. It may have to, in Augustine's words, even the sweetest bread to a sick person may taste bitter. Mm. And if it tastes bitter to them, they have to, you know, change their palate. You want them to grow and develop a better palate for those things, which means they have to try things they don't like. So as parents, as you're working through a text with them, like stay away from the, do you like this? (laughs) kind of idea. Um, Instead, like, do you think this is true? Is there anything the writer's saying that you've thought about before or you've seen in the world? Or do you think the author's wrong? Why? What do you see out there that, that disconnects from what the author is saying? Or, you know, why is her perspective so limited? Or why is her perspective different from where you are in the world right now? Or what justice actually looks like the way that you see it or the way that you understand it? Um, but really getting into those those questions about what troubles the student or um, if they do, if they keep coming back to like, I don't like this. Well, why? Like what, 
what about it is troubling you or is not placating your heart or is not patting you on the back or, or so forth? Yeah. And that's part of that process of conforming the soul to reality, right? Yes, Which where yes. we're thinking of there is something external outside mm-hmm. of my own heart and my own mind that that is that is true or that is good or that is beautiful. There's something eternal. Um, and so as I am approaching literature, there may be things that I don't like. And maybe that's because I'm recognizing something in that book that is not in line <laughs> With, yes. with ultimate reality. But yes. it might just be because like you were saying, there might be something wrong with me that I am not yet able to appreciate or understand. I think it was G.K. Chesterton, probably G.K. Chesterton, because he always <laughs> has a great quote for every situation. But it's some, his, one of these things is something like, there's no such thing as an uninteresting subject, only uninterested people. Yes. And, um, I was talking to one of my children about that earlier this week as they were talking about how boring a particular subject was, I was like, well, maybe it's you who's boring, not the subject. (laughs) No, that's exactly right. I mean, Flannery O'Connor says we're goods under construction, which means there's just going to be a lot of, um, sorry, that was my baby. (laughs) Um, But as goods under construction, there's going to be a lot of pains. And, you know, if something is being formed into an image that it's supposed to become, you know, you chisel wood, you cut things away, or you mold the clay, you press into different places. And the process of reading should be doing that. It should be changing us, constructing us into something better. I love that that thought because how often is it? I really do think about the books I've read over time, especially like I think about books I read as a child that really did form the way I think about the world. And in a real sense, like we're being fashioned by what we read, right? Which should also give us a warning and making sure that we're reading something that we want to form us in that particular way, I guess. That's, and that comes back to content. You know, a lot of my book reading for the love of God is about how or why we read. Um, But you're also talking about content and content then becomes very important, which is why I have all those reading lists in the back, right? Um, What are we reading? Well, and that's a perfect segue to my next question because now I really do not like the idea of some sort of perfect book list. You know, you give your kids, have them read this perfectly curated list, and they're going to magically become educated and holy. And, uh, you know, this is not a magic formula. But that being said, I mean, there's nothing quite so much fun as a good book list, right? Yes. Yes. And you've been making book lists from, you know, thousands of years. Exactly. So if you had to pick, five titles. I mean, five titles ish. I I don't, I'm not going to hold you to that, but, and you'd say, okay, every student should read these books before they graduate high school. Which five would you pick and why would you pick them? Okay. Top five. Um, so Augustine's Confessions, I, I just absolutely adore. That was really meaningful for me at 18. So I can imagine that that high school students can read it because I read it and I didn't ha- I was a public school educated kid and I loved it. Um, so that that one should be for every teenager, I think. Um, anything by Dostoevsky. So I always go to the Brothers Karamazov because it's the masterpiece by Dostoevsky. And I feel like you can see all of his great novels coming to fruition in that one. But a lot of people do crime and punishment, or, you know, with younger students because it's more of maybe of a thrill ride um, than than the Brothers K, but uh, they're they're all great. So anything by Dostoevsky, I would highly recommend. Dante's Divine Comedy, it is hard 
for teenagers to get through that. Um, I teach it at the college level and it's hard for college students to get through it. But <laughs> it's about the humbling experience of sitting before something that you don't understand. <laughs> Is that okay, Amy? Yes. Oh, no, please. I love baby noises. I don't get to hear them. Don't apologize. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. She's just talking. She's normally asleep, so I'm glad she's not crying. Um, okay. So Dante's Divine Comedy would be my third choice because you really don't understand the text the first time through. Everyone says, like, you read the Divine Comedy, you get to the end, and you're like, oh, now I have to read the Divine Comedy. It's just exactly. like, so if you're a teenager and you just read it, you're like, I didn't understand a word. That's okay. Like it's a first read. You need just a first read. Um, and it's just such a beautiful text. Something will stick with you. Like something will speak to your heart because it's just 14,000 lines of amazingness. So, um, I can't imagine it won't. Flannery O'Connor would be my fourth. Um, to me, she is the writer who taught me everything I know. Um, I've been listening to her voice since I was 15 years old. I was obsessed with her at 15. I couldn't get enough of her. I read all her complete stories, all the habit of being, all of mystery and manners. <laughs> I read everything by Flannery. So I would highly recommend her stories to start with, um, with teenagers and really make them an object of discussion because her stories can be enjoyed on the first read through. And I talk about this in my book because I give her as an example for how to read literally first and then spiritually. But they really demand also a, a wrestling like Jacob with the angel after you've read them, which I hope is a, is a high recommendation. Mm -hmm. um, and then let's see, for high school students, man, I'm just like looking at my bookshelf. I'm like, okay, do I want to pick Julian or Solzhenitsyn or Athanasius or, ah, <laughs> um, I know there's so many. Um, let me go with Julia Alvarez's In the Time of the Butterflies, because I remember reading that when I was a kid. I read it as a teenager and I couldn't put it down. And one of the things it, it showed me is like how to respond to history in such a way to discover the meaning that is there because especially when things look meaningless like the death of these martyrs the death of these sisters um the art is able to move that into showing us that meaning is always available that there's things that we can't see um right away when we're experiencing things but we can reflect on them and create and show show the meaning that's there not really create the meaning and i think that's a beautiful text for that well, I think you picked some excellent ones there. Uh, I will mention to anyone who's listening that I have an intro to Dante um, free webinar that uh, Kristen Rudd and Wes Callahan taught for us uh, oh, a year or two ago. So um, I will put that link in the show notes. And then my my daughter is actually taking a an online Dante class this year. This will be her second time, I believe, reading through the Divine Comedy. Um, but this time she's doing it um, for a full year, taking it slow reading a lot of other books along with it um, to help understand. So, and my friend Kristen Rudd is teaching that. So highly recommend um, The Divine Comedy. Yes. Have you wondered how to celebrate Thanksgiving during your homeschool morning time? Do you want to learn more about the history and culture of Thanksgiving, enjoy fun memory work, singing and read alouds, but you don't know where to start? We'll start with my Thanksgiving morning time plans and resource pack. I have a suggested morning time schedule and parent guide, several pages of printable memory work, book lists, suggestions for optional hands-on projects, 
and other Thanksgiving homeschool resources. Head to humilityanddoxology.com shop to get your Thanksgiving morning time plan resource pack. Well, would yeah. you make any changes to that list if you were talking to maybe a parent, someone who's like, oh man, I just feel like I need to reclaim my own neglected education. I never read anything hard. I don't know where to start. I'm feeling a little overwhelmed. Would you still give those same five suggestions or add or change anything? You know, if it's, if it is an adult who has never read within the tradition, I would, I always start with Homer um, because it's just, I mean, everybody, you know, Whitehead says that everything's a footnote to Plato. Well, that may be true on philosophy, but when it comes to poetry, everything's a footnote on Homer. Um, and to me, you just, you can't get better than wrestling with either the Odyssey or the Iliad. I, I prefer the Odyssey for story. I prefer um, the Iliad for, I, I just think it's better poetry than the Odyssey is, but, um, but both, that's where I would start most adults. I adore the Iliad. It it has been one of my favorite books since I was 14. Um, I first read Fitzgerald's translation and have tried others since, but just nothing captures my heart the way Fitzgerald's translation does. Um, and there's actually a really good audiobook version of that too. But it took me so long to really understand the Odyssey, I think, because I just got so irritated at Odysseus yeah, <laughs> that I, I couldn't, I couldn't. I was not able for the longest time to kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, being able to kind of step outside myself and listen to the, to what the story was, was saying. Um, and then it wasn't until I actually, I guess two years ago, read Emily Wilson's new translation of the Odyssey. Yeah. And it was the, I was like, do I like this now? I, it, it was the first time where I started seeing themes and ideas that were bigger than just Odysseus being a big jerk. Yes. Yes. I feel like she did a phenomenal job. She's, she's the translator I go to right now. Um, her and then Sarah Rudin for all the Latin translations like Aeneid and Augustine. Um, there's just some really good translators out there now. It really can make a difference. I would say that as well. If there's someone who's tried one of the ancient texts and they're having trouble with it, don't give up. Just try maybe a different translator because sometimes that can make a really big difference. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of my, um, one of my causes, I don't know how to put this, one of my missions, I guess, has been all these texts that I've rediscovered. So I was trained in great books. Like I, I had a public school education, but then I did great books at Pepperdine. I did great books at Baylor at University of Dallas. Like I've done great books everywhere. And it wasn't until I discovered um, some of these other voices like Julian of Norwich or Marie de France or, you know, some of the perpetuous testimony, um, some of these women that I had not discovered. And it made the great books come alive even more, just putting them in concert. It made them look bigger and vaster. And I was like, wow, like there's a world of texts out there to discover. And suddenly the great conversation just, I don't know, it like it was like a fractal. It was like a moment in like um, Frozen or something where you see all the fractals and you're like, whoa, this just expands out. So I would say with great books, like if you're picking a great book, like pick something too that um, that also fits where you are. So if it doesn't sound great to like start with Homer, there are a lot of other great books out there. That just kind of gave me goosebumps when you were talking about this explosion and the fractal of the conversation, just as you realize, you know, like at the end of um, Chronicles of Narnia, like farther yeah. up and farther in, right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That was a, that's a great line. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, this has been an absolutely delightful conversation. Um, Here at the end, though, I do want to ask you the question that I ask all of my guests, and that's just, what are you personally reading lately? What am I reading right now? Well, um, Philip Yancey just came out with a modern rendering of John Donne's Devotions. Ooh. And um, so I've been reading that. For my own like project I'm working on, I'm reading a lot of Edith Stein. So I'm reading, she was a, I don't know if you know Edith Stein. I don't. Um, Okay. She was a a Jewish convert to Catholicism who was killed by the Nazis um, when they were kind of attacking the Catholic church for trying to go against them. And so she, they, you know, they executed her, but she was a philosopher during a time where women couldn't get philosophy jobs. And so she wrote all these amazing essays and philosophical treatises. And so I'm just, I'm reading a lot of Edith Stein, um, her bios, her auto bio, et cetera, right now. Um, I'm also, I, I read a lot at one time. Do you want me to stop? Oh no, please keep going. This is fine. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't ever really just like read one work. Um, for fiction, I'm reading Sun House by David James Duncan. He wrote The River Y and The Brothers K, which is kind of a play off the Brothers Karamazov in a 20th century setting. And so he's just one of those novelists that like his his last book came out 15 years ago, maybe, maybe 20 years ago. But if he writes anything, I'm going to read it because he's just a phenomenal novelist. Um, So yeah, so that's a lot of what I'm reading right now. (laughs) It's always fun to have at least one living author. So you have the hope that there could be another book. (laughs) Our favorite favorite dead authors, you know, once you've read all of them, you'll never, unless somebody discovers a manuscript, I guess, but... (laughs) Well, and a lot of these dead authors, you just, you don't, there's so much that they wrote. And and that's the thing, like Dorothy L. Sayers, I thought I'd read everything by her. Um, And then I went to her archives and she had all these prayers that have never been published. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Yeah. So. Well, can um, you get on that please? (laughs) Well, actually I, so I I sent three of them to the rabbit room for uh, every moment. Holy, they're going to have a third volume come out of, it's a collection of different prayers by different people. So I sent them three of Sayers's unpublished prayers. So they'll come out in um, every moment. Holy. Oh, fabulous. Okay. I'll put a link to that in the show notes too. I can never get enough Sayers. I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Jessica, where can people find you all around the internet? Um, yeah, so I, I do have a Twitter. I try to use it really responsibly. Um, and so it's mostly a syllabus about like what I'm doing, like what you just heard, like what I'm reading and what's going on with me. And that's the same with my newsletter. I try to review a book every month in my newsletter of like whatever it is I'm reading and trying to dig deep into, um, just the life of, of conversation about books. And if you're, if you're needing that, or you don't have a book club where you are, I have a bunch of online book clubs that are coming out of my newsletter or through articles I'm writing on Twitter or, um, through my YouTube channel. I regularly try to try to converse with books in those different spaces. Fabulous. Well, I will put links to all of those things and links to your books over in the show notes for this episode at humilityanddoxology.com. Guys, thank you so much for listening today. If you would take a moment, please, to leave a rating and review in your podcast app while you're there and share this episode with a friend, that would be fantastic. And if you want more good book discussion, there was a previous Homeschool Conversations episode I did actually with an in-real-life friend and fellow book club member where we talked all about um, starting a book club and how to do that with your your friends. So that would be a fun follow-up to this episode. Jessica, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. This was really great. Thank you, Amy. I loved it.
Thanks for listening in on this week's Homeschool Conversation. For show notes and links to all the resources we discussed, head to humilityanddoxology.com slash homeschool conversations. And if these episodes are an encouragement to you, would you take a moment to leave a rating and review and to share with your friends? I am so thankful that you are here on this adventure with me. Let's repent of our constant striving, relish the joy of learning, and rest in the work of Christ on our behalf. Stand fast, my friends.